Hi, welcome to Ruin My Life, a podcast about forcing your friends to like the things you like. I'm Jason Edwards. I'm Kelsey Goldman. And today we're taking a step onto the Great White Way. Yes, a new medium. Theater. The theater. Which is like kind of surprising we haven't talked about the theater yet. Yeah, it's weird. It's a little weird. I think it's because we get introduced to things simultaneously usually. So one of us isn't introducing things to each other. And theater is not a great thing to be like, hey, I saw this thing. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Let's go see it. Oh, it cost $200. (laughs) Oh, it's gone because it was eight weeks. Sorry. Sorry. But this is a situation where we both saw the same thing. We did. Well, sort of. Sort of. I saw it. And then three years later, you saw a basically the same thing. Well, you saw it again and then I saw it. I saw it three times. I've only seen it once because it took your recommendation. Sounds like you're not a real comet head. It took your recommendation and the performance on the Tonys and Inger Michelson being in it for my mom to want to buy me tickets. <laughs> right. Because I can't afford them on my own. Right. Usually the barrier for life ruining is a little bit lower than that. Yes. But when it's this, you know, when we're, we're playing at this level, the Broadway yeah. level. We also weren't like really good friends when you first saw it. No. And you, and you would not have wanted to be friends with the person I was before I saw this show. Because it changed me. <laughs> it did? Yeah. I'm excited. Well, I was legally dead because I cried out all the liquid in my body. Yeah, obviously. And they had, they had to dead their re... They had to hook me up to like seven IVs at once. Obviously, Just to get yes. the, that, that tear water back in. All the tears shed during Sonia alone. <sighs> okay, let's talk about what this thing is before we get too deep into the... So, Jason. The weeds about how much I cried when I was watching it. So, Jason... Yes, Kelsey. What is Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812? I think you mean what are what Natasha are? Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812? <laughs> Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 is a sung-through musical adaptation of a 70-page segment from Leo Toy Story's War and Peace. I know it's a lot to take in right off the bat. Just wrap your head just, around just, it. Just, just stay with us for a second. It's not a musical adaptation of War and Peace. It's a musical adaptation of a 70-page segment of Tolstoy's 600 page 700 page it's a long book there's there's no way that it's this, a long book that this section of worn peace would move your your kindle like like note down at the bottom to more than like 10 percent. yeah like this is a very small chunk of what is a very very long book yes so i've heard <laughs> it was written by composer slash lyricist dave malloy and directed by rachel chavkin chavkin apologies to Miss C. <laughs> to Rachel. To, apologies to Rachel. I am famously bad at names. Uh, yeah, so it's based on specifically Volume 2, Part 5 of Tolstoy's novel. And it focuses on the characters, Natasha, obviously, uh, her affair with the character Anatole, and the character of Pierre's search for meaning in his life, just to put it very broadly. Musically, it has been described by Dave Malloy as an electro-pop opera which is sort of a fun buzzword. But I don't think it really describes what it is, though. Yeah, because it, it also draws heavily from Russian folk music, from indie rock, and just classical Broadway style. And like opera, like structurally opera itself. Like the whole like aria structure. Because some of the songs are like arias. Speak on that. Because it's sung through like an opera. And then there's these moments that are created. I haven't seen a lot of opera. Like don't. You know, totally hold me to this. Sarah's one we should ask about this. But I know that, like, arias are supposed to be this big moment for a singular character. And I feel like a lot of the time they don't really have that much to do with the plot. 
they're like a, a, a moment for the singer to shine musically and like emote. <laughs> and there's like that sort of like structure is built into this. That's that I think there are some, I'm going to call them solos because like they're not like what you would expect arias to be um, where they, they do build on the plot, but they're also like a chance for them to shine really musically. Yeah, so it's like got kind of an opera structure mm-hmm. with a more updated, almost electronic music vibe to it. Yeah, and accordion. Oh, an electro-pop opera. Now I get it. Thanks, Kelsey. <laughs> electro-pop just seems wrong to me. There's so much accordion. Well, it's, it's a punchy It's a punchy phrase. It is, it's true. And it gets across the feel of the show pretty well. Yeah. Because musically, also, it's kind of like the Broadway version of Once, where nearly all the actors play musical instruments during mm-hmm. the production, and like the orchestra is... is for the most part, hopping around stage, dancing, and, and, and performing. I feel like it's like Les Mis meets Once meets Spring Awakening. It's a good. It's like all those things. Okay, those... You've, got, you've got my attention. How much is it going to cost to make this thing? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll run for years, right? Unfortunately, no. Oh, but yeah, because oh. it has like the sort of sung through like musical style of Les Mis, I think mm-hmm. like there's a lot of comparisons being made there. Not that I should be talking to you or explaining what it is, but. No, you're right, though. Um, And then it has the whole sort of instrumentation of once. And then it has the sort of like anachronism in the music of Spring Awakening, which is the thing I really love about Spring Awakening is that like it's this 19th century story with like 20th century or 21st century music like rock music and i think yeah. that's really interesting and i think this show does that too I, th- I agree i think it's a little bit less prominent than it was in spring awakening mm-hmm. a little less gimmicky maybe yeah i don't love spring awakening i think that the influence of the russian folk music is like what kind of brings it all together like the story and the music and stuff like there's so much accordion man <laughs> that's true there's, there's a connection between the music even with the anachronism yeah to the material mm-hmm. that's not present in spring awakening yeah no disrespect to spring awakening or to my boy duncan cheek right creator of the american psycho musical <laughs> shout out duncan shout out duncan yeah oh mm-hmm. in, in particular i wanted to point out that the actor who plays pierre who was dave malloy in the original productions mm-hmm. uh spends most of the show playing piano and then occasionally hops up with his accordion and Dances around and plays accordion, so everyone everyone gets in on it. Everyone's part of the, the team. And Pierre is the is the largest role, I would say. I don't know if I would agree with that, really? based on the fact that well, he does spin, you he's know, most stage, of stage like the entire musical. Yeah, but he's not doing much for the first seventy percent of the show. I think it's it's very much his and Natasha's story. Yeah, but his, you know, their action. I actually doesn't think, intersect until the very very end. I also think the two of them are the most boring characters in the show. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Natasha more than Pierre, but whoa! Yeah, that's that's beat up. How are you gonna say that about Natasha? She just like her music interests me so little. Too bad. I know. That's too bad. So this is sort of a strange thing. It's a strange thing. It's a bit of a strange thing. It's a good strange thing. It's very. It's it's a great show. Yeah. And I thought we could maybe talk about it a little bit would explain why we feel so strongly about it yeah like why you think it works so well yeah and like this is kind of stretching our like you know you're ruining my life but like i really do think that it was you liking it so much that got me convinced me that i had to see it like i mean obviously other people liked it too it was nominated for tony's and stuff before i saw it like 
I didn't see it till after that, but but who saw it before was nominated for Tonys. You did. That was Jason. me. You that did. That was me all along. So yeah, I think yeah we should we we both really like it a lot and are very sad that it is no longer running. Rest <laughs> in peace. Though it is a it's a musical. They usually don't run forever for that long. Yeah. It, they usually run longer than Natasha Pierre did, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, the strange thing, Natasha Pierre existed in some form for nearly five years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of had a pretty good run from in that sense. Part of the appeal of it is the the staging that works so much better on a smaller scale, I would think. So I think it's going to live on. I would, I would hope so. I do know that a little background, when it first ran uh, off-Broadway in... You know, it played in a couple different places before it went to Broadway. It was set up as a dinner theater type thing where you were at a table or at a bar and you had drinks and food and the entire show happened around you in a very intimate, pretty small space. That in itself is a fantastic way to experience a show. But they, in moving it to Broadway at the Imperial Theater, they had to basically tear out the whole stage and build a new like bizarre like Frankenstage that sort of stretched like sort of like combined elements of the original production but still worked as an actual Broadway house so it was a sort of giant like winding fake dinner dinner club on the stage that like stretched out into where the audience like where the main seats used to be Mm -hmm. beyond that they had the typical you know different levels of seating in in the house the way most Broadway theaters do so but with like Planks or like yeah, there were like pathways. Like they went into the, the audience. Yeah, and there were like direct pathways, like from the stage onto like the the mezzanine, which was really cool. Which is, yeah, it's wild, <laughs> but it was like a heavy investment. So yeah. I do think this show has a future. Not on this scale. Not on this scale, perhaps. <laughs> I think it, it, maybe it's even better suited to a smaller venue where they don't have to destroy an entire theater <laughs> to uh, to bring it to life. So yeah, why is it good? Is I guess sort of the central question of our show. So we should address it. Mm-hmm. at some point mm-hmm. because it, on paper it's sort of very you, it's not a i mean when you try to explain it to somebody yeah your your pitch is very good but I, yeah. I i can't imagine like not knowing the show and having someone explain it to me it doesn't seem like it's gonna work when i was trying to convince my mom that we should go see it i was like it's a musical adaptation of tolstoy but it's like really good <laughs> and fun and, and you're trying to explain to someone that like this this adaptation of like War and Peace could be like a fun night at the theater, which is not something that people really associate. People with don't that. associate War and Peace, the brand, with any sort of enjoyment. No, I mean Russian authors in general don't really yeah. get associated with enjoyment. It's like Russian literature, but fun, <laughs> fun, fun Russian literature. I think it works mostly because of the writing, not to understell Rachel's fantastic direction. Mm-hmm. But I think what Dave Malloy does in this show is really impressive. Just for example, you know, the opening song is the, the prologue is basically a giant exposition dump because so the audience is essentially like coming into a story, story that's been going on in its original mm-hmm. form for roughly 200, 300 pages. It has to be caught up on what's happening. I also think that you would have that. You would have like that family tree. You would have like the characters. In, I don't know, I haven't read War and Peace, but I feel like you would have that sort of guide in the book. <laughs> I'm sure in certain editions of War and Peace, they have yeah. that same family tree they give you yeah. in the, for the program, which is referenced here in the prologue's lyrics. Which is also like really helpful when yeah. you're watching the show. <laughs> the prologue, I read 
um, Dave Malloy talking about how he taught preschool for three years. So the idea of like, you know, sort of songs that accumulate information so yeah. that you remember it better clearly comes from that tradition in a way. Yeah. So they, they really drill into your head like the main characters and who they are in a very short, in a very short, again, very punchy sentences. Natasha That's going to be my word of the uh, the episode is punchy, I guess. Punchy. Punchy. Anatole's hot. Anatole's hot. Belikov is fierce, but not too but important. not too important. <laughs> Yeah, they, they boil every character down, pretty much every character in the show down like one sentence descriptions. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Delikov is, is fierce, but not too important. It's maybe one of the greatest character introductions of all time. Yeah. Just letting you know off the bat, don't worry about this guy too much. Don't, uh... You don't, you don't need to know. He, he's gonna, he's, he's gonna have to play his part, but he, don't, don't spend too much time on him. Because <laughs> we're not going to. And it's very cheeky and meta and self-referential. And it sort of eases you into this complicated Russian you know, war story that's happening. But it also, like, it does, like, get you what you need to know. Like, it sets this foundation very well. And then you immediately go into Pierre's for solo number, which is very emotional. It's very sincere. He's talking about his problems with the world and his own place in it. And it's very involving and it hits you in a very traditional musical theater kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it really, it works. Like, you, you, you immediately, like, are hooked into this guy's story. And the whole show does that, like, constantly not quite to that degree maybe and never gets that meta again but it's 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 the tonal shifts are very very well handled and i think a a lesser writer and a lesser director as well couldn't have you know wrangled all this into one thing yeah because you go straight from pierre to moscow which is just like big and welcoming and i love maria um and grace mclean who plays her is just like so good (laughs) but yeah the whole you're right the whole show is just like this back and forth of emotions (laughs) because you go from sonia alone later into like the whole stretch of balaga and that the surrounding songs which is just like yeah it goes from a very like (laughs) like stark emotional moment to this High comedy slapstick number, basically, where basically. there's dancing and jokes and, and, but it works. and intrigue. And it works. It works and again, so at this well. point, you're like, you're deep into this very, very Russian story yeah. about human suffering. And yet, you, but at this point, you're, you're so caught up in it that yeah. the idea that this was like some sort of impenetrable, like giant brick of a novel is so beyond you at that point. Yeah. And if you're me, when I was there, you like have, have a relationship with the actors now because you're sitting on the stage and like they've come up to you before the show and just like talk to you about things. And then they're like, later, I'm going to come do this. Is that cool? That's cool. Great. Yeah. <laughs> is it okay if I put my whole leg in your face? Is that cool? Is it cool if I stand on you? <laughs> Can you stand to be stood upon? You just go, yeah, sure, whatever. Sure, just go to the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we should give some background on that. Yeah, that's rewind. To 2013, and I'm going to tell the story of how I first saw Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I'm very excited about. Not that. much of a story, really. My parents were visiting. They bought us tickets. And by us, I mean me and my mom went. This is the first show we ever seen, just the two of us. Oh wow! And uh, me, my parents, and, and Sarah, we went out before. You know, we were going to see these shows. Had a few drinks. Lambs Club. Uh, no. Um. Uh, I guess you're going to meet packing. So. No, we we actually took them out to to Williamsburg. We took them oh, to Norman's uh, Kill. Norman's Kill. Thank yeah. you. <sighs> and we had some whiskeys. Nice. And then me and my mom went off to the meatpacking district, 
well, Sarah and my dad went to see No Man's Land, where they nearly fell asleep. <laughs> uh, me and my mom went to the casino, which is this... Uh, the space isn't there anymore, right? I don't think so. I think they tore down. They're building a new theater there. Or they were going to at some point. But it used to be a little bit off of the main... What you think of as like the main drag of Broadway. Mm-hmm. It was basically this, this giant... I remember it was basically a giant warehouse and a tent, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this is where they were having this production of Natasha and Pierre. And this was, again, back when they still had the show in the dinner theater format. So you could indeed order drinks during the show. Nice. Not during the show, rather, before the show. And then again at intermission, which is the where you really get tripped up. Because <laughs> you have, like, your, your, your fourth drink of the night before the show. And you think, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. Then you have, your, you, have, you, have, you have another drink at intermission. And then all of a sudden, you're oops drunk. Whoops. And there's not much to it. It's a great show. It immediately, like, partially because I was so drunk, I think I was really, like, and in this new sort of exciting, like, environment for a theatrical show, I was, like, very receptive to what was happening. So I was very immediately, like, on board. And I sort of felt so, so, so deeply connected with Pierre's struggle because this is coming off of a time where I was living still back in North Carolina. And basically it was, like, inside reading and doing nothing with my life all day long. And it was also coming off a time just personally when I was, when, when Sarah and I had not been living in the same city for a year, so sad. which is coming off of roughly a point in time where we were not going to the same college for several years. So Natasha's problem early on in the show, which is that her, her beloved is off away from her. Sarah isn't here. Uh, it's not here. And obviously Sarah wasn't fighting a war, so she wasn't about to die. And we, <laughs> you know, not the same situation, but I'm saying. No, like, you, you felt. You I, felt. I felt it. I felt for her. You, I felt had some emotion. I felt for both Natasha and Pierre. And when the, that great comment showed up, I thought, boy, I wonder what your story is, man. <laughs> oh, I'm ready to be moved. Uh, long story short, when they got to Sonia alone, which is, again, this very <laughs> emotional number sort of coming right off the intermission almost, uh, I started crying and basically did not stop for the entire second half of the show. And at the end of the show, Dave and Philippa Sue. Uh, Hamilton's Philippa Sue. Hamilton's Philippa Sue. They were walking around, you know, basically just talking to everybody because that, that was a point in time when <laughs> Philippa Sue could do that. <laughs> and, like, as we were leaving, like, my mom is very sort of gregarious and, and warm to people, whereas yeah. I'm, you know, very shy and awkward. <laughs> and so she was, like, she's, like, stopped by the two of them and, like, I, like, shook Philippa Sue's hand. I was still, like, I'm pretty sure still crying. And I, said, I, just, I just said, thank you. <laughs> then I left. And then two years later... <laughs> You saw her again. Two years later, I was going to I was working on the off Broadway production of Hamilton, and I realized that I was about to meet Philippa Sue and that I had met her two years before. <laughs> crying. It's a drunken crying mess. <laughs> and I was so worried that she was gonna remember me. She didn't though. She did not. <laughs> Brief story for my second time of seeing the show. I loved it so much. When it was leaving the casino, they held a stunt. Sort of a stunt. The idea was that they were going to get people, they were going to get some people, and they were going to do a reading of War and Peace, like front to back, like continuously wow. over a period of like two or three days. Yeah. And I started off in Times Square, but it was really, really cold because it was like December. So so they moved it, I think, I think just at night, they moved it into the casino. Mm-hmm. So there was no crowd at this point. There was like no one observing it. Uh, and I signed up for the, the 1.30 a.m. slot. Nice. So I went in for half an hour, sat like in the front of the casino with me and like I think maybe you know someone who worked at the space. Yeah. While they just 
tracked my progress. And for half an hour out loud to no one, I read <laughs> One Piece. And for that, I got two free tickets. Nice. Yep. <laughs> you know, a couple years later, it was on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Much like what happened with you, my parents again bought tickets for me. My dad this time. And as I said, uh, and again. And we like, sat in like the same spot, right? Yeah. And again, yeah. like my dad got the tickets for the onstage. Like, fake. So did my mom. I was like, yeah. I didn't ask for that. And that's what happened. Yeah. I Maybe was I like, did. I don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was sort of of two minds about it. But yeah. my dad said, let's go for it. So we did. So that's a different experience, though, as you know. It's a lot. Being on stage. Because you're really like. You're like, wait, I can't do anything. <laughs> yes, because you are sitting there and you're watching the show happen around you and it's exciting and cool, but you're also very much aware that sort of just to your left, there's hundreds of people who are watching you. I mean, also, not, you get spit on a lot. You do get spit on. <laughs> you do get spit on. And they do stand on you. Yes. They do. They do, You do get stood on. Balaga ate my pierogi. No. I told like we got extra because no one was we were at a four person table, but no one the people who had the other two seats didn't show up. So we got like a bunch of extra pierogies. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I, he's like, can I have one of these? I'm gonna eat it later. <laughs> I forgot to mention they give you pierogies. Yeah. They did or, that. Or some sort of dumpling. I guess pierogies are Polish pierogi. technically. Oh. I understood it to be a pierogi. Yeah. yeah. They gave those out at the uh, dinner theater version. And I, I didn't know if they'd do it again for Broadway. Yeah. But they did. They did. I don't know if you get them in the in the like not on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. They were very good, though. And shaky eggs. Yeah, you get little shaky eggs for the blogging number to yeah. shake around. Did, did you, like, how'd, how'd, you, how'd you feel seeing it that way for the first time? I mean, I think I was, like, sort of prepped enough that, like, I'm honestly kind of glad I didn't see it in, like, the orchestra or the mezzanine. Because, like, I don't, I think what I, the way I did see it was more of an approximation to what it was mm-hmm. previously. Um, and it was also just really cool. Yeah. Like you're just so close to everything, <laughs> and you know, like we had two open seats at our table, so like during the second act opening, like people are just climbing over you and sitting <laughs> on things and just like hanging out, passing you sexual letters. Yes, or you know, like not sexual. Well, the op- the opening of the first the second act is about writing letters as, yeah. as, as, a, as a practice, and they many of the cast members will write little notes and hand them to audience, audience members. members. And I, I didn't get one my first two times seeing the show, but the third time I did, and it was highly hi- sexual. Highly sexual. <laughs> That's great. It was, it, I mean, it's great. They really, they really bring you into the world. Yeah. But no, I, I, I loved it. I, I think I'm glad since I saw it in, in that space, I'm glad I saw it from that point of view. Cause I don't think it would be the same. No, you, you kind of got away like do you are you more uncomfortable like knowing that people can see you on stage the whole show yeah. or are you more uncomfortable having to look at people <laughs> who are having like a, a whole different experience than you are yeah and like i mean that, that's 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 very I abstract i think it would concern. be different if i was sitting in like the Sort of like risers on stage too. Yeah. But like I was at a table. Cuz they crammed as many people as they can onto that stage. Yeah. But so. you still feel feel very much like you've been brought up on stage to to yeah. sit in front of people. Though it is cool just to see a Broadway house from the stage. It is. That's a neat thing. It is. Do you, do you so you feel like it still puts you into the world of the show more? I do. Even I with do. That sort of distraction of the people. I think I think because the lights are on you and you're not like looking at everyone. Yeah. 
I think if it was like in the round, it might be different. Because <laughs> you'd be like, oh my God, people are everywhere. I'm surrounded. I'm surrounded. I can't get out. Um, But no, I think it does. I think it does sort of put you in the world really well. And it's just, it's so amazing to like watch it happen around you and like seeing the dancing and stuff that they're doing on that stage especially during the blogger number when they're like going around and around and like i'm like somebody is going to fall into the pit i oh. know that they're going to <laughs> it's so i mean maybe it's like that with every broadway show but really when you're on a stage and they're dancing around you yeah it's like you really see like this this could go so wrong this is death defying oh my yeah right especially with a stage that complex right and you can like i also like the sort of seeing people play the instruments up close is really cool like when um anatole like goes hard on the violin like you can see like strings breaking off of the bow (laughs) like like that whole experience is like something you don't get to do very often and it's really really cool and the show just took so many risks that worked that like if everything didn't come together the right way it wouldn't have and i think maybe that's you know you know because it existed in some form for like three years before it was on broadway but I think it, it does have a lot to do with the writing. I think it's just the perfect marriage of like of writing and direction. Did you know that Rachel, director of the show, Rachel, also directed the stage version of Town? Yeah, I told you that. You did? Yeah, because when I recommended Town to you during the Randy Newman episode, I was like, she also did this. Hmm. I don't believe you. Fine. Fortunately, there's no record that could ever prove me wrong. <laughs> there's no audio... No tapes. I'll never be proven wrong. Obviously. Obviously. But yeah, no. And it was so funny. Like one of my questions I wanted to ask you at the end was what other literature slash media would you want to see adapted this way? And I was like, you know, we've we've talked about, I was like, I'd love to see something Greek. And I was realized, I realized like, oh no, that's just what Hades town is. <laughs> it's just Orpheus and Eurydice in this sort of similar, a sort of similar form, not totally the same, but. A lot had to come together for the show to work as much as it does. And I think, like, seeing it the way you saw it originally is probably the best way to see it. But I think seeing it on the stage in a a big house is okay. I mean, it's still really good. But you had kind of asked, you know, does it work divorced from that setting? Because I think, you know, a lot of people who like musical theater, like, listen to cast albums over and over again. Well, you know, like, does it work just musically? Um. I think, what do you think? Yeah, this is the thing I think about a lot because mm-hmm. obviously we were very, very lucky to see the show mm-hmm. when we did and the way we did and myself, uh, you know, twice before. Yeah. And obviously people in the future who discover the show, like now, like even if you, the listener, seeks this show out, you can't have that the same experience. experience we did. Yeah. And I, that's always, I, I struggle with that when it comes to theater. Yeah. Because that is, you know, supposed the to be the, the magic of theaters that it only <laughs> happens in one space yeah. in this way exact way once ever but I, I maybe it's just growing up as i did in the age of home media but it sort of sits kind of weird with me that there's like a thing that people just just can't just can't have and so i yeah i i, I would hope that people can still have a you know meaningful experience with it encountering it now just through the the sound like this the soundtrack basically mm-hmm. and i think so again like maybe I've, I've sort of that's part of why i told those stories is to impress upon you why that my experience of the show is so closely tied to my own you know very powerful mm-hmm. experience watching it the first time 
So I, I have a hard time evaluating it separate from that. Yeah. And it's obviously it was very bound up in a lot of personal stuff from my life. So I'm really, <laughs> so I sort of am not qualified at all to make this distinction. Mm-hmm. I, having only seen it the once and having like a fairly emotional reaction, but also like not as intense as you. Not that emotional. <laughs> I think that there are certain parts of it that hold up musically like just just with the cast album i think that's part of the reason like i was saying before that i find natasha uninteresting because i think her like the performance of her is beautiful and nuanced and and like you feel for her so much on the stage but you don't necessarily listening to the soundtrack i think her her songs are are pretty but not necessarily that emotive auditorially (laughs) <laughs> whereas like you listen to something like Dustin Ashes or but like Sonia Alone is my favorite moment in the show and I think it is like it is so emotive and beautiful as a song and you feel those feelings I also like of characters I identify with I identify with Sonia like the most in this show she just like wants what's best for her friend and like thinks she's making a huge mistake and doesn't really know how to tell her <laughs> um oh god the tears <laughs> the tears here they and come. there's just like so there's so much in that one moment that there's not in like any of Natasha's arias. Do you think there's any chance that that something some part of that might be that Natasha is kind of she's not a very proactive character? I mean maybe Which I think that rests I would rest that almost entirely on uh Tolstoy himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not saying that like the performances aren't good. I'm saying that the, because like the performance when you're there is like you do feel for her, you do, but the the characterization just isn't strong enough to come through musically. And I think you're right. I think it's because she she doesn't have, she's not a very active character. She's a very reactive character. Yeah, I don't know, man. The part in in no one else when she sings about like thinking that maybe. Andre is is actually just in the house right now and she's going to walk in and find him there and the whole thing has been some crazy dream. Ah, oh, that fucks me up. I just like I the the music doesn't move me as much as like any of the other arias. <laughs> Are you made of stone? No, cuz Sonia alone makes me cry if I so pr- much. If I prick you, do you not bleed? <laughs> um I'm not going to prick you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think I think you know where those char- those characters don't really shine on the soundtrack like outside of the thing until the very end until the sort of reconciliation of those of those people. So yeah, I think you know there are parts of it that do carry and there's there's really good musical moments and there's really fun like the I love listening to the the prologue like I, it's just so much fun to listen to and and just sing along with but you know, I think it's it's like any kind of sung through musical or opera. Like there's a lot of a lot of the storytelling is going to be not as fun to listen to. You, you can't, you know, cut out preparations and drop that on a mixtape. Right. That's not going to work. No. Dust and Ashes always reminds me a little of Stars from Les Mis, like just in how it's sort of an aside for a character, but it still feels like it feels not because for me, no one else doesn't feel I don't feel it from her point of view when I'm listening to it I just feel like it's a person singing those words 
Whereas, like, I feel Dust and Ashes as, like, a character development song. Interesting. Because to me, Dust and Ashes feels more like suddenly <laughs> from the uh, iconic 2012 Lame Is film version. No, Dust and Ashes is, because, is a good song. Yeah, but it wasn't present in the original version. It wasn't. Okay. And they, um, it's, a, it's, it's a great song. I'm not denying it. And then the production on Broadway was is great because they have, like, the whole ensemble standing up up in the mezzanine and there's yeah. a lot of it's very it's beautiful but suddenly it, it's not a good song though it um <laughs> but it's clear dust nashes is clearly like josh groban is in our show we he, need a he, song he, needs, he needs a big moment halfway through the first act because he doesn't yeah. have a lot to do with that whole act and we need yeah. a big josh grobany number <laughs> um we should we should take a second to, to to address the fact that neither of us actually saw josh groban your, your boy josh groban in this production that was sort of like it was an odd casting choice but I'm, I, I think it worked. I think it's basically like that's how they got the show to Broadway. Yeah. So like nothing against it. And like nothing against Josh Groban, who's a fantastic yeah. singer. Yeah. I don't think he can make a match Dave Malloy's just like disgruntled, like cranky growl, though. I saw um, Oak, whose name I'm not going to attempt to pronounce because I don't want to butcher it. And like he was good. He was really good. But he like I, I always find that Pierre is not as because Pierre is, is way older in the book than Natasha because their relationship always makes me a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and I think Dave Malloy was the right age to be playing that. Um, even he seems a little bit young for Maybe even. You like, know, yeah, he would have been good, Mandy Patinkin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that, that would have really aged the role up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we're not going to touch on there. that. That's, 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 that's the whole thing and we don't want to get into it. Yeah. Um. And he was really great, but it, it wasn't like cranky. <laughs> um, neither on the on the soundtrack and in person, the the peers don't really strike me as cranks. <laughs> They're not disgruntled enough. In the They're both very sympathetic, which I think is good because hmm. you you want them to be. But um, I think I I'm so sad that this show closed because there's so many people. I think that could have been great in these roles. Cause one of the things I really appreciate about the show is that it, um, it sort of highlights voices that you don't like voice types that you don't hear on Broadway a lot. Mm. Like the only, the only character with a real like classic Broadway voice is Natasha, which is maybe another reason why I find it like a little bit boring because you have these, these other types of voices like Amber Gray, who's playing Helene has like such a great raspy, like, wonderful like i don't know the word i'm looking for like rough but rich voice she's a powerhouse i know what you mean her her number like towards the you know halfway through the second her act raging bisexual is, number is oh, it's beautiful wait what which song are we talking about charming it's all about how pretty natasha oh, is Elaine, i thought we were talking about maria no maria is maria also has like a great like rock voice i think like she has this great like you just yeah. kind of want to hear her like yeah. yell. That's why. Listen, I was I was gonna go with you for an explanation of why Maria D is uh, is bisexual. <laughs> I just need I just need to see the evidence. But I, I was I was right there with you. Yeah, I was talking about Helene though. But Grace McLean, who plays uh, Maria, has this great like rock rock star voice. She reminds me a lot of um Lena Hall. And then Bertan Ashford or I saw Ingrid Michaelson have this you know wonderful light sort of indie voices that are like kind of like ethereal and ghosty um 
And you just don't hear voices like those on a Broadway stage a lot. And it's really, really nice to see. And I think there was a lot of people who could have really gotten into those roles. I mean, even even Pierre is a is a baritone or a, a bar a baritoner, I guess, is what the Wikipedia page says, which is not a traditional male lead voice. Yeah. It's generally a tenor voice that's that is. It's it's the Anatole that's the male lead voice. Also, maybe it's hard about Lucas Steele's voice because it's amazing. <laughs> You're right though. Like I'm going from the most obvious Britain Ash Britain. Britain Britain? Britain? I think it's Britain. Say Britain. Uh, I'm so bad with names. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> to everyone who's ever had a name, I apologize in advance. Britain Ashford is like the lead or lead singer of an indie rock band. Yeah. And so they basically got like another, not quite indie, but of the same style singer. Yeah. And to play when when uh, Ingrid Michaelson played that role. Yeah. And it's fun. To, it's just sort of fun to imagine like you know how many other like indie like female singers they could have cycled through right and like when would they have gotten to carly ray jepsen when would they have like gotten at to what carly point ray would jepsen? she have gotten up to that or or, or would by the time in the they, canadian version or by the time they got to her would she have been playing mario d <laughs> that's a new take on the character yeah i think it's not bad though it's not bad and then yeah like and like like Danae benton is fantastic yeah Bring, brings you know things to the role that weren't there when philip Sue did it she was also great mm-hmm. and um, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I wish I could have seen someone besides, as much as I love Dave Malloy. Yeah. I saw him, you know, twice. Twice. And then the uh, alternate I saw, because I, I went when, when Josh Groban was there. But you didn't see But Josh I saw uh, Scott Stangland. Okay. Who was very, was very, very good. Yeah. But definitely has the same sort of voice and even like the same like build. Mm-hmm. And like, look at the picture of Scott Stangland right now. It yeah, looks and he, like. And he played uh, Pierre at, at the American Repertory Theater. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, yeah. So he's out of town trial. Okay, yeah. But he's definitely like, he's like a Dave Malloy type. If such a thing did exist. Yeah. He's, I mean, you know. So he was great, but it wasn't much of variation. But I just think about, it would have been, yeah, like basically what you're saying, I completely agree with. It would have been great to see other people play these roles. Well, yeah, and, and Pierre is like, part of the reason that like actors really like Javert as a role is because it is also a... a a baritone role like that and there aren't a lot of leading roles in that voice type and so like there's so many people i would have loved to see play that role and i'm just upset we didn't get to see them we we might still we might still some someday someday i guess it was never really built to be a show that was going to run on broadway for too long it really wasn't unless they like unless they really kicked up like the stunt casting yeah which they could have done, and then maybe we could have eventually gotten to Carly Rae. <laughs> but no, it hurts, you know. Yeah, it does. When's she gonna get her second chance on Broadway? We need to. We need to write a musical specifically for her. Okay. <laughs> now, normally this is the part of the show where we find a way to pitch this thing to Netflix, <laughs> but now I'm wondering, like, if we can get anywhere in this Carly Rae Jepsen vehicle that we're okay. talking about. So, Carly Rae's strengths: great voice, particular qualities to it, though. It's very emotional. Emotional, yeah. It's sort of light and airy, but also powerful. Mm-hmm. What sort of role is that right for? Maybe like 1980s, like a fading beauty queen type. Ooh. Like not really like too old yet. I mean, like right. not, she has an age, like she's not like in her 40s. It's not, she's, like, it's not like Sunset Boulevard. It's yeah, like yeah. just like, like teen beauty queen that's like 30 now. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. Exactly. Okay feel you in the 80s in the 80s and 
I feel like that should be enough right there. But do we have anything else what, for what it? What is the plot? What, what is, is what is the plot? Oh boy, the plot is, is it just is it just Drop Dead Gorgeous the musical? Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, now we're sort of pivoting into a different direction, but I like it. Right. As long as we're hell, we've got Heather's the musical. We've yeah. got Mean Girls the musical. We're about to. Well, I guess they've already now caught up and surpassed the time period for for drop dead gorgeous but swing back around zeitgeist and pick up drop dead gorgeous, gorgeous yeah a very underrated movie that would make a i think a pretty good basis for musical i think it would actually if they can make heathers a movie that sucks by the way it's into not a good musical, not good on it's reflection. a bad movie not good on reflection it's a boy there's a lot to hate about the new heathers show that by the way is probably not going to air ever again because <laughs> it's um, so bad well they it got pulled for like a lot contemporary of reasons. reasons that we won't go into yeah because they're super bummers but like the as I, I when i read reviews of the new heathers people were like sort of took this tone of like they're how dare they desecrate the fantastic original with this and it's like yeah this sounds bad but like which is not great it's not that great either <laughs> i mean like i have a, a like a nostalgic spot for it but it's, yeah i think a lot of people do yeah. and that's that's totally fine like but I, dropped it gorgeous dropped it gorgeous underrated movie if you haven't seen it go watch it go watch a great movie amy Very adams funny. first film role early 2000s kristen dunst early 2000s kristen dunst my uh my home my right, home right, right the, there it's right in the cagey zone yep mm-hmm. they pick a good musical i think that's a good one it, well, who is but the, who, would, who would carly or jepson play is the question would she be one of would it, she be like the denise richards role it, or is she like the allison janey character Ooh, or the ellen barkin character Ooh, one of those two yeah, okay. I think she might be too young for She's that, but this maybe might this might be this could be like ten years off. It's true. We it's true. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay, so but these are two ideas yes. that we can table for now. Okay, we can come back to them if we need them. Right. We've got a the Carly Rae Jepsen musical. The, I mean, the, untitled the Carly Rae Jepsen project. Right. That is, we think, based in the '80s, somewhere in the beauty contest world. Yes. Or we have B. We have dropped a gorgeous musical, which yeah. I think basically writes itself. Yeah. Totally. I just need to get some composers on it. Yeah. I'm thinking um, Paul and Pasek. Pasek and Paul? Maybe. Pasek, no, these are two different guys. <laughs> Paul and Pasek. This is Ron Paul. <laughs> oh, God. And Justin Pasek's dad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it's still tied into the, the world of theater. Right, right, But right. it's a little bit, it's a different perspective Sounds than good. what we've been getting. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, don't you want, like, from the writers of The Greatest Showman? <laughs> And then put anything in, in that and sentence, then yeah, and anything, I'll go see it. Anything. Drop any words in there you want. Now, for the untitled Carly Jepsen project, does Carly write all the music for that one? It's got to be original music. Right. It can't just be like the Carly Rae Jepsen jukebox musical, which I'm also developing and pitching. <laughs> um, Nederlanders hit me up. That's that's a separate thing. That's a separate thing. This is, I don't know if... Well, well, we'll have to talk to Carly about it, you know? Obviously. Is she wanted to be like a creative force in this or is she wanted to just focus more on the performance and the the, you know, the singing and, and the acting? Yeah. It's all up to her. All up to her. Obviously, she'll be a producer, so she'll have you know, a lot of control over the project too. So, you know, it's uh, it's up to her. Um, so, Carly, when you hear this, um, just call me back anytime. Anytime. Um, I got I'm done with jury duty, so that's not a problem anymore. I'm totally For eight open. whole years. I'm good on jury duty. So, yeah, just hit me up. Anyway, Natasha Pierre, <laughs> I'm going to pivot back to the topic at hand. It's a good show. It's a great show. Okay. That's um, what is your favorite moment of the show? I mean, I hate to be that person, but, like, 
when that great comment shows up at the end, it is pretty moving. It is. It is. I know I joked about it earlier, but it is pretty. It is pretty good. It's a cool moment. And they, they create it on the stage lights. with like a very simple effect of just. It's so good. Lights moving like a comet. It's the easiest thing. I mean, I don't mean to, you know, downplay but like it, it. It's so simple. It's that so simple. It, it's so. You feel it. Yes. More than you would if it was like a big effect. I should say rather it, it's it's simple in a way that it doesn't call attention to itself as an effect. Right. And that's why it's effective. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as if, say, they all of a sudden dropped a, you know, like in the opening of Phantom of the Opera. But they dropped the that, chandelier. When the chandelier swings out. Imagine if at the very <laughs> end of, of <laughs> Natasha <laughs> Pierre, <laughs> that happened, but it was a giant like ball of flaming rock. <laughs> different tone. Different, different tone for the final moments of the show, I think. Yeah. And they still play that same riff. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I also, obviously, I really enjoy Sonya alone. It's that's my favorite moment in the show. I also just like some of the. I I have a really soft spot for um just the opening of the one song, the opera where um Mario just goes the opera the <laughs> opera. <laughs> But I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. <laughs> I, I think I also read that Dave Malloy took, takes a lot of joy in like, a, like calling the show an opera, yeah. and sort of playing around with that idea because of how much Tolstoy hated operas <laughs> as like this high class, yeah, you know, one percent thing. Well, um, and like he he's taking the sort of the medium of opera and and bringing it to the masses. He's giving it back to us. Giving it's, opera back to the people. It's a populist opera. It's. Nice. It's an Op- electro-populist opera. It's opulist? <laughs> o- opulist? What's your least favorite moment in the show, Kelsey? You know, I think, you know, it, it's different from, like, listening to it and watching it. Because mm-hmm. I love the private and intimate life of the house on stage, but I hate listening to it. I think my least favorite moment is probably... I don't know... It's so hard. While you're thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dial probably, back for us. Probably most of the Natasha and Anatole moments, like, I don't love them. But I like each of them by themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I love Anatole's introduction um, in, in the opera song, but I don't love, like, Natasha and Anatole. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. What about you? I do want to comment, since you, since you point out the, like, the, the difference between great moments in the soundtrack and great moments seeing it in, in, in person there is a moment so the character of andre is absent for most of the show mm-hmm. and so he also appears in that number um the private intimate life of the house as the actor is playing the character's father yeah and he's this very old like angry like bitter senile just terrible like miserable old man and there's a moment towards the end where where andre finds out like he's been betrayed by natasha where pierre says he smiles just like his father which is Oh, extra God. powerful because then you you understand why he was cast as the uh, other role. Yeah. I just remembered that. Yeah, that that's the sort of thing you can so like. Good. You know, I always I I sort of I get down on theater sometimes for a lot of reasons, but things like that you you can't really get that same moment, that same sort of impact in a different medium. I also didn't realize until that moment when I was watching the show that they were being played by the same actor. Hey, I probably didn't get it the first time I saw the show at all, like <laughs> until like curtain call maybe. Oh, I'm not. I'm not too smart. Okay, my least favorite moment in the show, though. Yes, least favorite. Uh, charming. It's out of place. I think. I it, love Amber Gray and her voice, and I like her singing. She's she's fantastic. 
I don't know that it fits in the show. And I love that it's just like all about how pretty she thinks Natasha is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can I can appreciate that. Yeah. But it does sort of. It feels, it doesn't feel like it moves the show forward at all. And it also like, I don't really think develops Helene as a character. Really. Yeah. Well, I think Helene is probably the worst character in the show. Yeah. You in that have to hate, hate her. She's, ba- she's basically as bad a person as as anatole is Mm -hmm. but there's not even a moment like it's no redeeming qualities yeah and anatole is like pretty much just a little shit the whole way through yeah but certain points even kind of feel for him even even pierre is like i'd love to be like that guy he's living (laughs) in the moment he's loving life and helene just seems unhappy even when she's like enjoying herself yeah yeah Yeah. but that's through no fault of the performance no by amber gray amber gray who is great who is great amber great amber great Nailed it. Got it in one. And I like Put it in the can. That's, that's she's, good. She sounds great in Hadestown because she's uh, the leading lady in that. Is there anything else you'd like to see adapted in this weird way? Hmm. Well, I wanted to... Well, sorry, do you have something else to add to that question? Because well, I would answer immediately. Um, I, I kind of wanted to talk about how uh, we were talking about Spring Awakening earlier. And I think we're talking about whether or not this translates without the stage production. Mm-hmm. And I think what this has on Spring Awakening as a stage production is that, like, you need all of it to work. Whereas I find the music of Spring Awakening stands on its own. And sometimes, actually, the the staging and the... Because it's not sung through, it's there's dialogue. Like, sometimes that takes away from the music. I just wanted to kind of make that comparison. Like, Duncan Sheik's music is more singable and memorable, but it is kind of a little bit separate from the show as a whole. And it's beautiful and it works pretty well, but you can restage the show in a very different way and it still works. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, I almost think that this music doesn't work if the show is staged differently. Agreed. Anyway... And and going on that, like, is there anything else you would like to see in this sort of format, this sort of like immersive, historical, anachronistic format? Oh, there is. Please do tell. So we have here a famously long and some say impenetrable work of fiction. I called this. I fucking called this. I literally was going to write this. With a, with a lot of world building to be taken care of. Oh, Jason. Very hard for people to get their heads around. What we need... I want to say this is not written down in the notes, and I know what it is What already. we need <laughs> is an adaptation of Infinite Jest in the style of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Okay. But, like, all of Infinite Jest or just a part of it? Just part of it. Just part of it. Just one part of it at a time. <laughs> Multiple we'll get through the whole thing in 70 page chunks. Oh, God. Produced into three hour musicals. Sounds great. It does sound great. <laughs> the possibilities are endless. You don't, I can't even like pitch it to you because you don't you won't know what I'm talking about. No. But there's so much to work on there. Tennis is everything. That's all I know oh, about. Oh, boy. The synchronized just... tennis numbers alone. Would be oh, amazing. my God. Oh, my God. The Canadian wheelchair assassins. That's going to be a hell of a number right there. Sure. Spinning around on stage. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and who would you who would i cast as as uh, madam psychosis boy it's tough i have no idea it's tough no 
Oh, and Don Cately. Oh, man. Who is the... Listeners, write in. Let me know who your dream <laughs> uh, performer is to play the musical role of Don Gately in, in my adaptation of Infinite Jest as a... Wait, sorry, is, my, is, my, 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 my 20-part adaptation of Infinite Jest as a Broadway musical. Is Carly Rae in it? Ooh, there's a role for her. There's definitely a role for her. Um, well, I mean, maybe there is. One of the, one of the, fail, one of the failings of Infinite Jest is that... Not a, lot of, not a lot of girls? It's like three. <laughs> but how many do you need? There's only a thousand characters in the book. Oh, God. How many women do you need? Do you wonder why I don't want to read this book? Um, you don't want to read it because you're a coward. I am. Don't bring women into this. <laughs> you leave women out of this. I didn't mean that. I know. Anyway. <laughs> so wait, do you have an answer? Do you have a thing you'd want to, or, do you, or did you just put that question in to, to, to bait that infinite jest answer I actually out of me? didn't. I wrote the question and then I was thinking it on the way, thinking of what I wanted on the way over here. And then I realized what I wanted was basically just what Hadestown is. Um, <laughs> well, you're in luck because that already exists. That already exists. I didn't get to see it, but it exists. Oh. It might, it might come to Broadway though. Who knows? But then I was like, what's Jason going to say? Oh, I know what Jason's going to say. <laughs> there is only one answer. <laughs> Special thanks to Dania Bowd of the Weeping Willards for use of their song, Outside in the Rain, from their self-titled album, available now on Bandcamp. And special thanks to Carly Sussman, who designed our logo. You can find her work at carly-rose.com. If you have a second, please leave us a rating or a review or, you know, tell a friend about our podcast. And as always... Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Is that your Josh Groban? Happy yeah. holidays. <laughs> they wish I would go ahead and fuck my life up. Can't let them get to me. And even though I always fuck my life up, only I can mention me. They wish I would go ahead and fuck my life up Can't let them get to me And even though I always fuck my life up Only I can mention me Only I can mention me Only I can mention me Um, and I had a recommendation actually <gasps> Uh, what? What? What's happening? What, I know. What? What is this? Twenty sixteen ruined my life. I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I was recommended on some social network that I should listen to uh, a nice Mitchell's concept album, Hades Town. Ooh, I've heard of this. Which is a uh, um, a concept album, which is the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Ooh. Um, so the it came out like 2010 and I heard before, but last year they staged a musical adaptation directed by Rachel Chafkin Chafkin Chafin. The the woman who directed uh Natasha Pierre. Oh, 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 oh.